Good morning, everybody, and thank you for joining us this morning from um, your southern Alberta or other places. Ottawa, I see already in the chat, and um, we welcome you here. During this time of social and physical distancing, SACPA believes it's important to keep engaging with the public on issues of the day. And in order to do so, we are very thankful for the continued support we receive from the University of Lethbridge, Shaw Spotlight, and the Lethbridge Herald. Our speaker today is Julie Marshall, um, and the topic is, this is no ordinary World Food Day, addressing global hunger in a time of COVID. Julie Marshall has worked as a Canadian spokesperson and communications officer for the United Nations World Food Programme for over 14 years. She's based here in Canada, and I believe that is in Ottawa, but has seen WFP operations firsthand in a number of countries, including Pakistan, Ethiopia, Bolivia, Sri Lanka, Honduras, and Haiti. This experience has given her the opportunity to see how the WFP delivers food assistance in emergencies and how working with communities improves nutrition and builds resilience in the countries the WFP serves. This is a very exciting time for the World Food, Pro Food Programme as they have just received the Nobel Peace Prize for 2020. Congratulations, Julian. We look forward to your talk. Thank you. Thanks for the introduction and your your uh, and setting me up nicely. That um, we are. I mean, first of all, I have to address the Nobel Peace Prize. We are deeply honoured at WFP. Um, it's something that's really important because for us, it's going to be putting the world's hungry at the centre of the global agenda. It shines a light on 690 million people who go to bed hungry every single day, and it highlights the hard work and sacrifice of present and past WFP staff who over the last 50 years have really made the organization what it is. And Canada, Canadians can be proud and, and share in this recognition as well. Canada has been and continues to be one of WFP's most important donors. So I know that uh, many of you may not know who we are, so I really wanted to take this time today to explain who we are and what we do and how um, the pandemic has really impacted the work that we do on a day-to-day -day basis. So WFP is the world's largest humanitarian organization. We reach around 100 million people with food assistance in 88 countries around the world. We have unrivaled experience to get the job done quickly at scale and in the, most, the world's most difficult environments. We have more than 18,000 staff, most of which are working in the field. And these national staff are the backbone of our organization. They're sharing their experience to help WFP reach the most vulnerable. We partner with thousands of, uh, well, over a thousand national and international NGOs and UN partners. Uh, to provide food assistance and tackle the underlying causes of hunger. We have a vast supply chain network that enables us to quickly deliver life-saving assistance anywhere in the world. On any given day, we have around 5,000 trucks, 30 ships, and 90 planes delivering food and food. And we receive most of these contributions from governments but also from private companies and individuals. And we can be proud that Canada is one of our largest donors and they've supported us over the last 50 years. In emergencies, WFP 
uh, when there is an emergency, WFP is often the first on the ground and providing assistance to victims of war, drought, floods and natural disasters. When the emergency subsides, WFP helps communities rebuild their lives and livelihoods. And we work to strengthen the resilience of people and communities affected by crisis by applying a, a development level. main food crisis are in conflict zones. Places like Yemen, where we're feeding around 12 million people, or South Sudan, where we're reaching 5 million, or Syria, where there's an ongoing conflict, where we continue to reach over 4 million people every single month. Conflict forces millions of people to abandon their crops, their homes, their jobs, putting them at risk of hunger or even famine. And women and children are especially vulnerable here in these situations. And WFP recognizes this and builds our programs to respond to their unique needs. Climate change is another main driver of hunger. Floods, storms, droughts increase hunger by destroying land, um, livelihoods, crops, food supplies, affecting uh, people's lives and livelihoods. And it's um, especially smallholder farmers who lose their livelihoods and they can lose it in one major storm. So WFP saves lives in emergencies, but we also change lives using sustainable development, addressing the root causes of hunger so that communities can thrive in the long term. And changing lives really means strengthening communities using food. So we find out why a community is hungry um, and we work with our partners, help the community to rebuild their infrastructure so they no longer need outside help. Giving people food assistance while they're working on their own projects. The community may need a road to get crops to market or correct or um, water irrigation systems or ponds to help crops or livelihoods or livestock grow. We feed communities while they're doing this work, while they're working on their own infrastructure. Um, WFP also reaches around 18 million children in school with a nutritious meal. The idea is that well-nourished and healthy school children are better equipped to learn, fulfill their potential as adults and participate in a country's development as a productive citizen. And we know school meals can increase enrollment. Um, we see higher attendance. School feeding removes barriers for girls' education, nourishing them through childhood and adolescence, helps them stay in school and provides an incentive for families to send their girls to school rather than make them work or marry early. Sometimes uh, this can be a, a school meal can be a the first and only nutritious meal of a day. For families, the value of a school meal can be the equivalent of 10% of the household income. For families with several children, this can mean you know, a large saving. I met a family in Bolivia, it was a, a single father who had five small children. All the children went to the local school feeding to the local school and received a, a nutritious meal first thing in the morning when they got there and during the day. And this saved you know, so much money for the, for the father himself. He didn't have to feed them uh, maybe just one meal a day. And when we visited his house, the only thing he had in the kitchen was an onion. So, you know, these school meals are really important to, to the world's disadvantage. So we also use um, take-home rations to keep um, adolescent girls in school. And this can be in the form of a bag of rice or cooking oil uh, that is given at the end of a term when the girl um, stays in school or sometimes boys stay in school longer. But it helps 
um, for parents to continue to send their girls or boys to school. And something else we do is we, we use homegrown school meals. And this is where we work with local smallholder farmers, mostly women's associations. And what we do here is we gather together smallholder farmers, again, women, to, to form their own group. And we bring them together, giving them, working with our partners, giving them the tools and the knowledge that they need to grow a more nutritious crop, um, better quality and a bigger yield. And then WFP can purchase that food from them and take it down to the local school feeding program where we're feeding their children. And this really helps women grow their own business as well as, as um, their children get fed a nutritious meal. So right now, WFP is working in more than 100 countries to set up sustainable national school feeding programs. And WFP's ultimate goal really here is to encourage and facilitate facilitate national government ownership of these programs, a tradition that has really happened, already happened in 44 countries. So this is really important. So it's okay to start these programs and to be feeding children, but the idea is that we want to be handing over these so that they're self-sufficient. And Canada has been a really strong supporter of WFP school meals, contributing multi-year funding to schools in places like Syria. And in this particular school feeding programs in Syria, we um, employed local women to come in and pack the school lunches. We reached out to the local farmers and the local bakeries and purchased the local produce to go into the school meals. And this obviously um, for the child as they're returning into school gives them some stability and some hope as well as a nutritious meal and obviously an income for the women and farmers and, uh, and the bakeries. So it's it's a win-win. Um, but to get to zero hunger, food is often not enough. We need to provide food assistance in emergencies that save lives, but also the right nutrition at the right time can help change lives and really break that cycle of poverty. So where possible, food should be fortified to address the needs of the population. And WFP helps communities to fortify their own food or their local produce. Um, what we saw in Afghanistan was that poor families were eating mostly bread and tea. Um, so WFP worked with the local bakeries, making sure that their bread flour was fortified, making sure that these poor families, when they purchased the bread, were getting the nutrition that they needed. And WP also uses um, ready-to-eat foods, something like this. Um, this sort of product, you just tear the top off and squeeze out the paste. And this is ideal for small children over six months old um, to supplement breastfeeding. It has all the nutrients and vitamins that a young child needs. This particular package, the food was purchased and procured within Pakistan and produced in a factory within Pakistan as well for the local community. And what we'll do is we'll work with the private sector, companies from around the world that has the knowledge to produce this kind of product, something that will sit on, um, could be on the back of a truck or in a warehouse um, in hot or cold countries for weeks or months at a time, something that's inexpensive. So this is something that we work with with uh, the private sector on.
Um, we also use uh, micronutrient powder. So again, you tear the top off and you add this to food. Um, it doesn't change the taste or the look of the food, but something that doesn't have a lot of nutrition in it, maybe a school meal where they haven't the, don't have uh, the nutrients available to them, this will add it to their meal and obviously for families as well. Again, very nutritious and um, not very expensive. Um, these also are high energy biscuits. These are really good either in school feeding programs when you haven't got what we call wet feeding, when we can't cook on the premises. But these are also ideal in emergencies situations as well. So somewhere like Haiti where um, people aren't, they don't have access not only to food, but to clean water or to cooking facilities. Simply um, sharing these high energy biscuits with children will give them all the nutrients um, that they need throughout the day. So um, when food is available in the market, but people are too poor to access this, to, to access the food, WFP uses cash-based transfers, giving cash instead of food. Now, a good example of that are um, for Syrian refugees in, that are staying in uh, Lebanon and Jordan. WFP uploads around $25 per person per month onto what looks like a debit card similar to this. Um, and basically, this gives the beneficiary the dignity to go into a WFP designated store and purchase the food that they need. They can purchase eggs, vegetables, fresh food, um, fresh fruit, something that wouldn't typically be in a WFP fruit ba a food basket. But what it's also doing is injecting that cash into the local economy. That storekeeper now needs to hire more people for the influx of new customers that he's going to receive or she's going to receive. They need to reach out to the local farmers and the local bakeries to make sure that they have the produce um, that these people are going to buy. And in uh, 2019, just last year, WFP distributed $2.3 billion worth of cash into local economies through cash-based transfers. So these digital cars um, can also work with our partners. So again, um, Syrian refugees, I'm not sure if it was Jordan or Lebanon, there was a really bad sudden um, snowfall. So what UNICEF was able to do was upload cash onto the family cards where they knew there were small children so that those families could then go and purchase warm coats um, for their kids um, to, to take them through the winter. So this is, <clears throat> this is just a different way of doing things, of using cash instead of food um, when we can. And obviously, it um, saves on the carbon footprint, so we're not shipping food from maybe from North America right across the world to where it's needed when food is either locally available or in, in markets that can be purchased. So in 2019, WFP estimated that 2020 would be the worst year for hunger since World War II. And then COVID hit. So that was even before we had uh, the pandemic upon us. So COVID-19 really takes hold, has, has taken hold across the globe and has made the poorest people poorer and the hungriest hungrier. As millions of people lose their jobs and their livelihoods, many families are finding it really difficult just to put food on the table and feed themselves. WFP estimates the number of acutely food insecure people could increase 80% from 149 million pre-COVID to 270 million by the end of this year.
and WFP is mobilizing to meet these new these new food needs. So WFP is hoping to feed 138 million people. Last year we fed 100 million people. So this is a huge jump for WFP to take this caseload on and it will require the biggest humanitarian response of WFP's history. Now Food assistance is a critical part of any global response, but at any given time, food needs are growing. We're seeing that. And do WFP's annual shortfall, funding shortfall, is widening. So at the moment, we're looking at a shortfall of around $5 billion to take us through to the end of the year. And if we can't bridge that gap and uh, continue to reach, uh, reach people with effective response, we won't be able to save their lives. And WFP will have to be making some hard choices going forward. Uh, WFP's um, logistics support to the humanitarian community has really been providing the backbone of the global COVID-19 effort through a network of hubs, passenger and cargo airlifts. So not just for WFP food and staff, but for the humanitarian and health community at large. So ongoing restrictions in, on global movements, border controls, commercial transport um, uh, disruptions still mean that um, usual routes for humanitarian and health organizations are really being disrupted. And that's why we've set up this network of global humanitarian response hubs. The system routes medical and humanitarian cargo and workers to the front lines with flights between global and regional hubs and onwards to priority countries. And since January, WFP has dispatched almost 65,000 cubic meters of cargo, enough to fill 26 Olympic-sized swimming pools to 167 countries. Now, these shipments will include uh, personal protection equipment such as surgical masks, gloves, gowns, face shields, ventilators, um, emergency health kits. So it's the World Health Organization and UNICEF are the main users of the WFP service, um, but there's also uh, 56 other organizations being served. Now, Canada has supported WFP's um, common logistics service, but also the Royal Canadian Air Force supplied an A-17 plane in July to support our common services in Panama, transporting PPE equipment across the region. So we're very thankful again for WFP, uh, sorry, for Canadian support there. Um, because of COVID-19 and the amount of people that we reach who are very vulnerable right across the world, we've really had to change the way we work. So if you think about um, the work that we might do in a refugee camp where we have food distribution points, instead of distributing food to thousands of people on one day, we may organize 10 distribution points over a number of, number of days. Multiple locations, staggering attendance, uh, redesigning layouts to allow for physical distancing. And what we'll also do as well is include health screening services, hand washing stations, and we also take that opportunity to educate community on prevention measures as well. So, um, you know, WFPs uh, takes the health and safety of our staff, our partners, and of course our beneficiaries very, very seriously. 
Now, the coronavirus has disrupted education systems across the world. Uh, many of us have seen our own children not being able to go to school for a number of months. The forcing these closures has affected around 90% of the world's children. And we're witnessing the largest education crisis of our lifetime. Nearly 370 million school children missed out on school meals on which they depend, including 13 million children, 13, who received WFP school meals. We know from previous crises that struggling families find it hard to send their children back to school, particularly the most disadvantaged families often keeping their girls and, and boys sometimes home to help either look after other children or to look for food or um, to help in the fields. So right now, WFP has changed the way that we've worked in schools that are no longer open, and we're feeding or assisting around 7 million school children in 45 countries affected by the, full, the school closures with take-home rations, just making sure these families have some nutritious food. Now, despite um, producing most of the world's food, smallholder farmers tend to be food insecure themselves. You know, globally, they form the majority of people living in poverty, helping to raise their incomes and improve their livelihoods, holds the key really to um, sustainable food systems and um, advancing food, food security. The pandemic is placing significant stress on food systems, especially in failing states where food systems are already flawed or disrupted. All actors um, and livelihoods along the food chain are affected from farmers to traders, distributors and retailers, as well as millions of consumers who rely on, uh, feed, on that food to feed their families. And we see uh, tighter border controls, commercial transport disruptions mean that farmers can't get their crop to market. The markets are closed. Seeds and fertilizers can't get to the farmer. WFP helps smallholder farmers by supporting their access to forecast information, resources, services and markets, helping to build their resilience and reduce their vulnerability to shocks and ongoing shocks. Also, we help them by investing in warehousing and storage, providing guidance on storing and handling food and uh, facilitating, facilitating their access to the private sector. WFP also supports smallholder farmers directly through local purchase. WFP serves around 15 billion meals every day, sorry, every year. Mm -hmm. So it's important we use our, our purchasing power wisely. So no one government or organization can achieve um, zero hunger alone. More than ever, they need to be a global solidarity to help all people, and especially the most vulnerable, to confront the crisis facing the planet today, multiple conflicts, climate change, and COVID-19. So you can actually go to um, WFP's uh, email, uh, website wfp.org or followers on our social media accounts to find out any more about WFP and of course I'm here to answer your questions. Lovely, thanks Julie for that wonderful talk. Wow, that's quite impressive. Um, we have some questions in the queue so I'll just jump right in. Our first question comes from Beth Mundell. In how many countries and in which grades are food incentive given at the end of term? up to what age slash, slash grade is this done? 
That really depends on the country. So first of all, we work in um, 60, over 60 countries with our school feeding programs. And as I said, 100 where we're assisting governments. And it really does depend on um, what the issue is. So in some countries, it, it, there isn't a discrepancy where girls or boys are in school or girls aren't getting to school. But with the countries where they are, that's where we use those kind of incentives, um, those take home rations to either attract the girls or the boys to stay at school longer so it really does just depend on the um on the local community and what's happening on the ground and how we can best respond okay our next question comes from mark goodall food aid is very susceptible to fraud for instance i have seen sacks of weed or flour clearly marked usd aid not for sale for sale in markets at mali is this much of a problem for WFP? And if so, what steps are being taken to prevent this? Right. So, I mean, this does, it does happen, unfortunately, but the amount of food that we work with on a daily, weekly basis. A food up for sale. What they do is um, they chip away at our um our authority, our, our trust that our, that our donors have. So we have to be very careful. But we, as we said, we work in conflict zones. We work in some of the most dangerous places right across the world, and we do everything we can to make sure this doesn't happen. We make sure that we have, in, in all the programs that we do, that we're reaching the goals that are set out for that particular program or um, that particular operation. And we monitor each um, each each uh, as, as we progress through the programs, we monitor to make sure it's reaching those goals and that, in fact, we are reaching the people where we need to. So we do our utmost um, to get food to where it should go. But in these difficult circumstances, 10 out of 13 um, of the places that we work in insecure areas, it's very difficult to do. Our next question comes from Knut Peterson. Is WFP the sole? or the main provider of food at most refugee camps around the world. Please explain how food is provided in these camps. Again, it depends on the camp. We work with thousands of um, NGOs, um, either national or international, even Canadian NGOs around the world. So um, if Care Canada, for instance, has a um, a system set up in a particular refugee camp and they need food to be supplied to them so that they can reach out we partner with them in uh, to do that making sure they have the food that they need and that's why it's important as well um, although WFP was awarded um, the Nobel Peace Prize we're hoping that this award will help us um, uh, get more funding um, will bring us you know bring us to the attention of the of the media and the general public and give us the food that we need so that we can continue to supply our partners um, that do the important work in the field. So I, I couldn't say, you know, who runs what in which camp. It's all different around the world. It depends on who has a good program and how we can work together. Um, and that's how we work on the ground. Our next question comes from Timothy, who is the reporter for the Leftbridge Herald. The problem seems immense. 
How do we move forward given the extent of the problems we face in the world? And what can Lethbridge residents do? That's a good question. Um, on, on a personal individual note, um, you can find out more about hunger, global hunger. You can go to our website and, and find out about the work that we do. You can share it on your social media accounts. As a, as a journalist, you can write about the work that we do or the 690 million people that go to bed hungry every single day. And that, that sort of attention will hopefully continue um, to bring in funding from the Canadian government, will encourage private sector partners to work with us, um, uh, sharing their expertise, um, sharing their funds, uh, working, but also individuals. Individuals can make a big difference. Um, we actually have an app called uh, Share the Meal, which is downloadable, it's free, and you have it on your phone and you can literally just share a meal, one meal um, with a child of, uh, from either from Syria or from Yemen or from Lebanon, you can choose and just make that difference, either one meal or a week's worth of meal. And that ch you can see how that goal is met if we're trying to reach 100,000 children or a school feeding program, you can follow the, the response there as well. So as an individual, you can make a contribution by sharing your knowledge, sharing your, uh, your networks, but also sharing funds as well. Our next question comes from Laurie Schultz, although she says later on that she does believe you just don't answer the question, but I'll ask it anyway. <laughs> um, you mentioned partnering with UNICEF. Does WFP partner with other NGOs? Yes, I yeah as I said no, um, UNICEF and other UN agencies. So our main partners can often be in a in a, a refugee setting, UNHCR, um, the Red Cross, the Red Crescent, UNICEF, um, in school feeding programs. They're a great partner where we work together on the nutritional and health of um, the children that we serve. So uh, as a partnership, we can bring in the food and uh, the Un and UNICEF as an organization can bring in either vaccinations or deworming or education on healthcare, that sort of thing. So we, when you bring people together or children together at a school, it's an ideal place to then um, to, to reach out to them and, and, and feed them. But also at a refugee camp as well, um, if there's an emergency, a fast onset emergency, working together with NGO partners and UN agencies means that when someone is looking for, um, we can find out what their needs are, first of all, and make sure we respond together to get those needs. And our humanitarian logistics service, as I said, doesn't just move our food across the world and our staff, but the humanitarian communities as well. So that's an important issue. Our next question comes from Terry Shillington, and I think you talked a little bit about it, but um, does Canada contribute as a nation, and if so, how much? Yeah, Canada is one of our largest donors, and they have been supporting us um, for uh, around 50 years. I, I don't know all of the history, but I know it's been 50 years. Um, in 2019, they were our seventh largest donor. Um, so this is really important. And again, and, and sorry, how much? Um, Canadian dollars last year, they gave us uh, over 250 million. Um, so that is, that's really important. But what is also important is Canada is, on our, is one of our board members. 
um, is making sure that we have multi-year funding. So when we start a program, when we start as open a school feeding, that the, the funding is there not just this year and this season, but will continue over the next couple of years. We can build a program better when we know we've got a few years to do it and make it more sustainable. Um, they're also, as a donor, they've supported our school feeding programs, our humanitarian um, emergencies, given us timely contributions to make sure we can react quickly. Sometimes it has to be overnight we have to get to people very fast but also um, with our humanity sorry our development work as well which is just as important because what we try to do as we as we save lives in humanitarian situations is use a development lens there so that we're not um, going back and saving the same lives over and over but we are changing lives of people so that we they don't need our help anymore Canada is a great donor. Lovely, lovely to hear. Our next question comes from um, Henny Mundo. How does WFP work with the Red Cross in disaster relief situations? They're, um, they're a very strong partner of WFP, Red Cross and Red Crescent. Um, I, because I'm not working on the ground, my job here is actually in Canada. Um, I don't have that much experience and I haven't seen them working together. But when we were looking at what was happening in Syria uh, and the war there in the first couple of well, right through, um, they continue to be a very strong partner, not just in Syria, but around the world. But there, what we would do, we worked hand in hand. So they knew um, they knew the communities on the ground. Um, they knew uh, they would work with us to get food um, to uh, cut off communities. Um, we used our trucks, their trucks, and we worked together. So it was it was a, a very much a partnership, in, and and that's that's one response that I was very much aware of as we followed what was happening in Syria. Um, so a very close partnership, as we do with lots of the um, Canadian and global NGOs and local NGOs as well. Then uh, Henning has a comment that he says that, um, um, as earlier stated, Mark Goodall asked this query, but Henning also observed U.S. aid not for sale wheat in uh, Swat Valley of Pakistan and the local markets for sale. So that's more just a comment. Um, the next question comes from Beth Mendel. Beth Mendel, rather, you indicated impending five billion shortcut, five billion dollar shortfall. What fundraising is done? Who are the major donors? Individuals, countries, others? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I need to say that the, that five billion is U.S. dollars. I often talk in U.S. dollars when I when I'm talking to a Canadian audience. I do apologize, but it's um, yes. So the we are constantly the work that we do is um, is fundraising. So when I'm talking to the media, um, and again, this goes back to how important the Nobel Peace Prize being awarded to WFP is, because it really has put us at the centre of everybody's agenda. We've had um, notes of thanks from many prime ministers and organisations around the world. So people are taking notice, and it's really bringing the 690 million people. Um, that go to bed hungry every day 
right to ev to everybody's house, to everybody's home. We're talking about it today. This is excellent that we are. So we're constantly fundraising. Our executive director is constantly moving from country to country. Not so much now because of COVID, but and his job is to fundraise and to make sure we have the funding that we need from governments, but also from the private sector. So we are always looking for, if not cash, um, for technical experience that can help us produce uh, products or to be more efficient or effective, um, to use the latest technology to make sure that we, it's at our fingertips so that we are the most effective organization and we can reach millions of people at scale. Our next question comes from Trevor Page. Although, as you've said, Canada is a strong supporter of WAFP, its levels of ODA is well below Lester Pearson's recommendation of 0.7% of the GNI. Is WFP lobbying Canada to, cre to increase its foreign aid? What can I say? Oh, uh, Trevor, we would love to see that um, ODA is in, in Canada and across the world. I think UK and a couple of Nordic countries have reached that amount, and it was a Canadian. Um, uh, it was a Canadian that actually that that pushed for that. Um, Pearson, I think it was. So this, you know, it was something that we would love to see, because then we wouldn't have to be fundraising all of the time. When we start a project, when we start feeding people, we don't have to start making choices. Um, when we go to a refugee camp, we don't have to decide that, okay, do we cut from 100,000 just feed 50, or do we cut the rations in half? Do we have to do both? Who gets fed and who doesn't? So we would, we would very much like to see um, ODA uh, increased in Canada and across the world, and to have the five million, the five billion funded shortfall met. Okay, our next question comes from Knut Peterson. The United States, under its present president, has withdrawn from several world humanitarian organizations. Has that affected its support for WFP? It actually hasn't. Um, I don't follow the funding from other countries as closely as I do Canada, but what I can tell you is that um, the funding under this administration has actually increased to WFP. Um, again, I couldn't quote the exact figures. Um, it is all available online. You can see how much funding came from the US um, over the last couple of years. But what I can confirm is that yes, we are getting more funding from uh, from this particular administration. Okay, our next question comes from Laura Schultz. Does the WFP partner with any other NGO whose focus is to provide contraceptive health, particular for women? Yes, we do. We work with um, the one that I know of is UNFPA. Yeah, that's correct. And we work and we work with them. Um, sorry, and it's not necessarily contraception. It is um, health knowledge. So um, what we'll do is we'll work with an organization such as them to in, maybe in our school feeding programs, sharing knowledge or where we bring women together, maybe in our health centers when women are coming, um, when they are pregnant or nursing and they're coming to collect their nutritious uh, products from WFP, we might work with that kind with different organizations and partners as i said when you get when you get people coming together we use that uh, point or that that meeting point to not 
only uh, share the food that we need, but also we can then speak to women about their health needs, about their nutritional intake. Um, and sometimes what I've seen um, in the countries that I've visited is we don't always give women um, that are coming into the clinics food for the next three months, we give them enough food for a month so that they keep coming back and we can keep an eye on their pregnancy or keep an eye on their babies um, to make sure they're getting the food that they need. So we use those different touch points um, to bring in our partners. So it's not the work that we do, but uh, we might be working side by side. Um, I have a question, if that's okay. Um, you mentioned that um, during the COVID crisis, children aren't going to school, which is really impl impacting their ability to have a, a, a meal, a nutritious meal. And you mentioned the cash cards. So are the cash cards a way of, of mitigating some of that or other, do you have other um, ways to mitigate that these children are no longer getting their meal or their meals at school? Um, it depends on the country. It depends if the food is already in the country and it's available. In some cases, uh, we had food situated at, at the schools ready to, uh, to facilitate school feeding programs. And then we would give a certain amount of food and the community would bring in other nutritious food to, to, uh, to add to that. So if the food's already there, what we saw in Honduras, for instance, was that um, the teachers actually got on motorbikes and took the food as safely as they could to the communities and to the families and delivered what was left of the school meals over to the families because they desperately needed it. So it would depend on the circumstances. So in countries where we are working with homegrown school meals, so we are reaching out to the communities, to women's associations to gather that food, we continue to do that where we possibly can because those women need that business, they need to sell their crops and we need that food and then we will deliver it either to the schools when they reopen safely or um, through uh, you know delivering as a food distribution point and if we don't have uh, the food available for whatever reason then we can actually give cash to the families um, so this obviously just makes it uh, in some cases more easy to, and safer to get to the families they still have to go to the store but obviously with safe distancing and social distancing um, you know we can take care of that issue as well thank you our next question comes from Mary Shillington with the cash cards do you think there is abuse of these, i.e. stolen cards, sold cards, etc.? Yeah, you do have to be very careful and, and we, we make sure we have the knowledge before deciding uh, whether we're using a debit card, whether we're giving cash at like an ATM, whether we're giving vouchers and how we work with the community to verify who is picking up that. Um, that cash card. So what we've done in the past is um, we've used iris scans. We're using those in Lebanon and Jordan. So it may be that we're not using these cards specifically. A woman will simply walk into the store and use her eyes. She doesn't need to carry anything with her. And that is an excellent way of making sure that um, you know that's her entitlement and she will take that food home and it does not get given to anybody else um, and we also use um, any technology that's available to us that we can use in the field so there's um, by a, a, 
um, biometric scan, there you go, um, as well as the iris scan. Um, we Obviously, we give cards as well. But again, it comes down to if we're using markets, if we're using it in urban settings and um, how these can be used in the stores or in, in some cases just a market marketplace. So it just depends. But we have checks and balances against everything that we do. Uh, Laurie Schultz, how does one contribute financially to the WFP? Would you provide contact coordinates, website or phone number, please? Um, the best way to, it depends on which way you're comfortable with, but please go online. I think that's obviously the best way and the easiest way. Um, you can contribute through WFP.org. Um, we do have a new office in Canada. You will get a tax receipt if you request one. Uh, just follow up with me or as you as you make your donation. Um, but also there are other ways uh, to contribute through the um, uh, Share the Meal app um, is, a, is another way to go. So we're very welcome. Any contributions? Lovely. Our next question comes from Knut Peterson. Arguably, it is in everyone's interest to support people in their own countries to lessen the need for people to migrate, often ending in refugee camps. That's it. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, I can talk to that a little bit. Um, uh, I mean, people typically don't want to leave the country that they're in. Um, and we did a a survey of Syrian refugees as they left Syria and asked them why they left. Um, and we wanted to know what the causes were, what what made them leave the country that they didn't want to. What we found out was it, very often they would leave their, ha their home and move five, maybe six times to family members, um, losing more belongings as they go, no income, no way to support themselves until with desperation they would leave the country. And what we saw in the survey, it was a pretty informal survey, but it, it told us that they left because of insecurity. So they were they were scared of uh, of, of the groups of, of their families being hurt, but they also moved because of hunger. And what we saw as well was, um, I, I'm trying to think what year it was, um, there was a, a food crisis and we weren't able, we didn't have the funding available to put on our debit cards for uh, for the Syrian refugees. So we were having to make choices. Again, do we cut the amount of money, which we did, we cut it down to $13 rather than 25. And then we cut out the, you know, just right down to the bare minimum. But what we saw was people were migrating. So it was Germany that came forward. And what they decided was it was cheaper to give 50 cents to keep a refugee in the family and, and refugee in the country um, that they wanted to stay in and feed them through the World Food Program than $50, which is what it will cost if they arrive on their doorstep. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can think about food different ways, but if I think about my family, I'd do whatever it took to feed them. And if that meant I had to leave, it would be my last resort, but I would do it to feed my family. So, you know, keeping people where they want to be, either through emergency relief or more importantly and much better looking at the long-term causes of hunger and helping them that way. Um, could that second question, uh, second part to the question came in. So is oh, there it, is. Yeah, okay. yeah, it, it came in. There's often a little bit of a delay on, on YouTube. So I think it got stuck in the delay. So I'll read the whole uh, question out again. I'll start at the beginning and I'll read it okay. again. Arguably, 
It is in everyone's interest to support people in their own countries to lessen the need for people to migrate over, often ending up in refugee camps. Is WFP able to accommodate volunteers in the field? And if so, how extensive is it being taken advantage of? That's a good question, and it would depend on the country. I couldn't, I actually don't believe that we uh, facilitate volunteers, but I could be wrong on this. It's it's a very good question. Um, I, yeah, I'd have to I'd have to come back to them on this one. I really I don't believe it does, especially in conflict zones, um, in the insecure places that we work. Um, I really can't see that we do that, but I couldn't say for absolutely certain. So I might have to come back to them on that one. Well, maybe it's good that his second half of the question didn't come in because (laughs) how you answered it initially was very interesting. (laughs) Um, Our next question comes from Mark Goodall. How has COVID affected your operations? Well, they've they've affected us right across the board um, from the increased amount of of Hungary, people in the world. So we're having to stretch, having to change the way that we work, um, whether that's in a food distribution point. But what we've seen as well is the face of hunger has changed. So um, people in urban settings are hungry. People that we weren't addressing or didn't need our help before um, are finding themselves in need of food assistance. Um, So what we're doing there is very often using cash-based transfers, because that's a way of not only helping the beneficiary, the person that needs our support, but injecting that cash into the much-needed um, local economy. And so, you know, we'll in everywhere that we work, we look at um, what is the best way to deal with this situation. There has to be food available in the market for us to give cash in the first place, in whichever form. Um, but where there is cash of uh, food available this is a way to 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 help in two different ways so it's, it's affected us right across the board um, we've never been so busy I've never been so busy um, and our you know the, the more people are hungry so and the people that are suffering the most are the poorest the people in Yemen uh, there's 20 million people in need of food assistance or humanitarian assistance we're only reaching around 12 13 million every single month but we look at at, at the health systems there are on their knees um, women are scared to go to the health clinics in places like DRC because they're worried that their children will catch COVID. And what will happen is they're not getting the um, uh, either the, the food that they need, the nutritious food, or they may not be getting the injections and vaccinations they need. We could see an increase in something like measles, preventable diseases, um, because women are scared to take their children to a health clinic. So it has it has all of these knock-on effects as well. Okay. Um, Beth Mandel has a comment, a local shop, local being Leftbridge, Alberta, uh, a local shop, Umami, has the share the meal option for meals. Whoa. Yeah. So, um, oh, that's fantastic. I'd love to hear about that. I, I, let's connect after this call because I would love to hear about that. And it's something that she's doing within the store. I guess so, yeah. Um, That's excellent. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, yeah, it's, it's a really good way. I mean, when we talk about the enormous problem, you know, the amount of people that are hungry, they're huge figures that I continue to use. But when you know that you can make a difference to one person or to one family, and very often I use this share the meal when I've got my family together. So, you know, say I'm just sharing this meal here on Thanksgiving. It's a, an important time um, for us to share a meal with a with a family. you know a family that we don't necessarily know and then you share that information on your social media and encourage other people to join in as well and share a meal with uh, for either a month or for a week or um, it 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 makes us feel better and it makes us realize that just that um, that one thing can make a difference that one dollar or whatever it takes that you donate can make a difference to somebody's life our next question comes from Trevor Page Tell us about one of the most memorable stories from your visit with WFP operations overseas. Okay, that's a good one, Trevor. Um, There's lots. Um, I think for me, it was my first trip to Ethiopia. And I I have four children. So for me, I was very apprehensive about going to the school feeding programs. Um, This particular one had about 900 children in the school feeding programs and they showed me how um, they'd started with a couple of hundred and then they introduced school feeding and and it just grew and the kids were lovely and I was very moved and I thought this was great. But the very next day we went to what we we used to call, this was a while ago, about 10 years ago, um, what was called a merit program. It was basically um, food assets program where we work with partners on um, degraded lands working with smallholder farmers showing them or sharing our expertise with the local university students who would then take that knowledge to the different communities and it was basically they took us to a community where I could see a before and after and it was a hill that had been terraced they showed me how and why they terraced why the crops uh, were growing the ponds the beekeeping the diversified crops and I I was surprised that that had a bigger effect on me than seeing all these small children and what what struck me was a grandfather came up and he had a donkey and a child on the donkey and he was taking the child to work and in my mind that was a very proud grandfather with his SUV taking his kids into school and showing me that he didn't need WFP anymore he had after the you know the few years that he'd worked with the Canadian funded program had changed his farm he got down to no stock and uh, he'd lost all his um, his uh, his goats. But now he had goats. He had a donkey for his child to go to school. He was very, very proud of the fact that he didn't need us anymore. And I think it surprised me, but that was it. That was the story that I've carried with me. But there's lots of those. You can, I, you, I could go on. <laughs> you and Trevor both, I'm sure. Yes. Um, <laughs> Knut Peterson, one of the big problems facing local producers in developing countries is competition from cheap, subsidized food imported from the developed part of the world. Please comment. Yeah, and that's, you're you're right. And in WFP, initially, um, would would transport food from one side of the world to the other so we would have a surplus in North America that was you know this seemed like a really good idea and it was at the time to ship that food across but it isn't now what we see is we have this huge 
uh, purchasing power. So why not use it to actually reach the smallholder farmers, the ones that are, there's 500 million of them that are hungry, that are the poorest of the poor. So let's help them. And, and purchase their food, help them grow a better crop. And we don't do this alone. This is done with private, uh, with partners like FAO um, and other NGOs that help share their knowledge, just like the merit program I saw in Ethiopia, share their knowledge and change their lives so that we can then purchase that product from them and take that to their local school feeding. And it was, I think it was one of my favorites as well. Okay, so another story, this again was Bolivia and it was a woman's association. And she said, I used to sell my produce over the fence to a guy with a, with a truck and he would take it to the market and he made all the money. But now she was president of this woman's association hundreds of women got together and after I think it was just three years they purchased their own processing plant and they weren't just purchasing selling food now to WFP for the school feeding but they were selling it in the local market and in the supermarkets and further out from their region so you know it makes a huge difference when you purchase food locally like that and not um, bring it in from other countries. Graham Smith, who's joining us from Ottawa today. I have Sri Lankan children's artwork called the Jackfruit Paintings, inspired by the UN to promote plantations which were producing food by the time the tsunami struck. So that's a comment by Graham. Graham, I've actually been to um, Sri Lanka. It's one of the most beautiful places in the world. I love candy and I'll go back with my family any day. And it's actually a Canadian um, uh, Brenda Barton, who's the country director there. And what I saw there was um, the problem wasn't so much the lack of food, but the lack of nutrition. And uh, it's something that's very important to uh, to WFP working in the healthcare system or within the health clinics, making sure women ed and adolescents, girls get the nutrition that they need and in school feeding programs. And that's what I visited there as well. It's pretty amazing. His second part just came in. Uh, can, can you tell me if I can use them for fundraising or who to contact? Uh, I think it's a great idea. Contact me um, and I'll see if I can connect with Brenda. And uh, that would be great. Yeah. Yeah, let's I'll, talk. I'll make sure the two of you are connected. Um, Thank you. That seems to be it for the questions. Um, I have Bafman Mundell. Thank you so much for your talk and the invaluable work you do with the WFP. Uh, Laurie Schultz, Julie, thank you for your very informative on the ground work at the w, of the WFP. Congratulations on the Nobel Peace Prize. Very well deserved. Thank you for your work. For thank you for the work that you do. Um, before we end the live stream, do you have a take-home message for us, please? Um, I, I just think it's important that when I think of the Nobel Peace Prize being awarded to the World Food Programme, I think it's really important to understand why and, and, and who it belongs to. You know, it belongs to our partners on the ground. It, it belongs to our donors like Canada and, and other international donors. Um, it belongs to the staff who put themselves on the line every day to make sure people are fed but it, it also 
it belongs to um, the people that go hungry every day and just putting them in the spotlight. So I'm hoping that this this talk and the other media interest that we've generated around this award will continue to do that so that we can raise funds and close that gap, continue to feed people. Excellent. Thank you. And one last thank you from Mary Shillington. Thank you so much, Julie. I learned a lot this morning. I hope you did. Thank you. Okay, and by then we'll end the stream. Um, just a reminder, next week, um, our session is thank you for your service. How well are we recognizing and supporting Canadian Armed Force veterans as they re-enter society with Brad Hagen and Wayne King? So we look forward to seeing you all tomorrow, uh, next week, sorry, next week, Thursday. Thank you.